Ladies and gentlemen, it pains me to say this, but you're listening to the podcast that dares not speak its name. Once again, that guy. Hello, folks. Rich Outfield here. Welcome back to the podcast that dares not speak its name. A great man uh, once said, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. It's such a great quote that I named one of my favorite stories after it. It's such a great quote that I'm going to the well again with it here today. It's such a great quote that uh, I don't know who said it. You know, it's, it's, it's attributed to Groucho Marx, uh, but he's attributed with a lot of great statements. And, and some say that it was George Bernard Shaw and the Wikipedia page for Edwin Edmund Gwen says it was him in 1959, and Peter O'Toole says it in My Favorite Year, so I don't know. But I love that quote, and maybe I'll come back to it. Not long ago, I got an idea that I wanted to talk about comedy. Do an episode where I talk about it probably for a little while. In a rambling form, like I do on the uh, Rish Outcast, but sitting still and focusing, like I do, or used to do, on this show, with better sound quality, talking about why comedy is hard, or at least hard for me. When when we were on our last family vacation, or rather the last one I went on, as I was grown and in college at the time, I once made a joke in front of my dad about a certain religious leader being proficient in kickboxing. Now, he took great offense in this, and it took all my strength not to scream at him, as usually happens when I'm around the man. You know, just just yesterday, I saw him for a few minutes because he was visiting my sister, and he said to me, uh, he said to me, what work did you do today? Not, hi, son, how are you? Or, is that beard going to stay? Or, um, do you think this Ant-Man movie will be any good? But what work did you do today? Well, in retrospect, I should have told him, Dad, I went to work yesterday, and I have to go to work tomorrow. Today is my day off. But instead, uh, I told him I washed the car and recorded two chapters for an audiobook. Which was a lie. I mean, I only record... No, I actually did get two done. They were just short chapters. Well, my dad looks at me the way he does when he's looking at me. So disappointed, so disgusted that he had a son who was a cute baby with expression-filled eyes that could have been anything, could have done anything with his life. But look what he became. Sigh. And he says, And who paid you to do those two chapters? Again, defensive. I should have lied and said, Well, the publisher pays me. Dad, the publisher of the book, which is by an author some people are actually fans of, so it's sort of a big deal to me. But instead, I told him, well, nobody pays me yet. I, I get a portion of the sales. I, I get a percentage of every copy that, uh, and my dad said, so how much did you get paid to do these two chapters? Oh. Anyway, I, uh, Years ago, I made this joke about the kickboxing religious leader. And it was just done in good humor. I I say that realizing how that sounds. But that's how I said it. Not in a sacrilegious way, but in saying that the man was old, but he sure was tough. And my dad really got upset at me being inappropriate. And, well, I stormed off on our vacation and walked around the neighborhood of a foreign land. And, uh... I got the owner of a movie theater to give me a movie poster to a movie I didn't even like, but I thought that the translated title was funny. But the point I'm trying to make is my Uncle John makes jokes a hundred times more crass and offensive than that in front of my old man, actually mocking my father and his values. And you can talk about the Pope or anyone diddling children or whatever it might be if you're my Uncle John and my dad doesn't even blink. He doesn't care what John does or says. It does not bother him. I've never heard him once stand up and say, How dare you say that homosexuals are just as good as people? To John. 
only to me. Which I realize is an overshare, and I'm sorry about that. But I fear there's going to be a bit more of that in here before the end. Consider yourself warned, okay? Hey, come back for the next episode. You know, I actually recorded it and have it ready to go, and it was supposed to drop in early December, but I broke Birth of a Sidekick into four parts instead of three, so it got delayed, and then it was Christmas time, and everything got delayed, and so, so just come back then, and you'll be able to hear, if you can hear above the car noises, me talk about a story I wrote and say that it's not a great story, but I'm sharing it anyway. You know, if you've heard one of those, you've heard them all. But uh, keep listening. I really need the ad revenue. Now wait, I don't get anything for those. Even less than the audiobooks. Whoops. There was a point and I've lost it. Kind of like Connery had the cure for the plague of the 20th century and I've lost it. The point was, uh, being funny is not always easy. Sometimes it's a roll of the dice. Sometimes you say something and you just knew it was going to be hilarious. And it wasn't. Sometimes you say something and your dad or a stranger is outraged or upset or disappointed. Like when I said bastardized to my mom, I tried to explain to her that it's an actual word and it has an actual meaning. But um, comedy is hard. Even unsuccessful comedy is hard. I know I've heard myself trying to be funny. I've heard the the desperation in my voice and thought, no, dude, turn it down. It's not working. Don't even try. And sometimes I quit when I'm ahead. And other times, uh, more desperately, I'll rack it up a notch and try harder to be funny. To mixed effect. As you know, as anybody who's lived, who has a sense of humor knows from experience. But, <clears throat> cards on the table. I also have to admit to you, up front, that this show was inspired by something somebody said on the forums. Now, the, uh, the, the forums are where fans and or listeners of the Steve can go and talk about, well, pretty much whatever they want. They can bring up an old gag or remind us of something we said that we never followed up on or talk about a show they liked or a writer that spoke to them. Big and I moderate the comments, but the only time I ever delete a post is when somebody gets on and talks about where you can find Canadian pharmaceuticals or pills to ostensibly make your wang longer and stiffer. I remove those because, well, I went to the link, bought some of those pills, and my John Thomas is even smaller than before. I never remove posts because they're critical of us. Although there have been a couple I've been tempted with. Recently, we had one where a guy said he had listened to a bunch of all our episodes. Maybe he said he'd listened to all of our episodes. He had listened to a bunch of or all of our episodes and just had to speak because enough was enough. He hit a certain episode and it became clear to him that we were creatively and ambitionally bankrupt. We'd hit rock bottom. It would be better for us if we'd tied a millstone around our necks and jumped in the Susquehanna. I don't know. I'm paraphrasing. He had something to say about the story we ran that month, and something to say about each of us. And he may well have listened a great deal, because he knew which one was big and which one was rich. Non-fans usually refer to me as rich, and what our shortcomings are, or what he perceived as our shortcomings, whichever you prefer. Now, I'm not particularly immune to criticism. In fact, our commenting friend said so, that I can't take criticism. So I didn't thrill to read his words. But it's one line in particular that I feel I ought to address. Oh, oh, he also said Big and I were racist. But that's a topic for another discussion. In fact... Everyone's a little bit racist. Oh, okay, well, there you go. Guess I don't have to do a show about it now. But the statement I wanted to address was him saying, Rish is funny, or Rish used to be funny, I, I can't remember, though there is a distinction. But he seems to think being offensive and being funny 
are the same thing. And that gave me pause. Am I more offensive than funny? Do I think that being offensive is the same thing as being amusing? My father would certainly agree. And uh, to trot out the oldest joke we've done in the Doonstief, maybe it was my dad who wrote that post. Dad, you listened to the show, oh, and to more than one episode, I feel closer to you now than I ever... Oh, well, wait, the quote in question was, Rish is funny, but he seems to think. So, no. Nobody listens to this show, to the podcast that dares not speak its name, or the Rish Outcast. But if there were someone out there listening, they might be saying right now, No, 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 Rish, stop talking. You are overreacting doing a show about this. You need to nod when someone insults you and move on. You doing a whole episode where you talk about this is proving the guy's point, the point that you can't handle criticism. You're basically giving this moron what he wants. Now, I'm imagining it's Marshall Latham saying these things. He wins if you let his words bother you. It's like, this is Marshall talking, it's like a terrorist blowing up a shopping center and nobody dares go shopping again so the terrorists totally win. You need to forget about one detractor and do a show where you repeat the things that people who like you did find funny or, or try to find something new to be funny about. Like Islam or white cops shooting black teenagers or the phrase legitimate rape or, okay, imposter Marshall Latham, you had me, then you lost me. I understand, I think, your point, but I want you to understand my point. Comedy is hard. And it's hard to figure out how to address comedy. It's just too big a subject. You could do a series of shows for a year, and it would only cover some of what makes us laugh or what makes us squirm. And I'm way too lazy to do that. But I will do this show about it. And this is going to be something different, different from my other episodes, something I've not really done before. I'm not going to say that this will be a special episode, because the word special, at least before it became a euphemism for the handicapped, usually means something unique and important. I mean, you know the gag. A very special episode of Blossom, or whatever. You know, I remember the very special episodes of sitcoms where Michael J. Fox's best friend dies, a character we'd never seen on the show before, or Carol Seaver's boyfriend is drinking and gets himself killed, or Mindy Kahn loses her virginity on Facts of Life, or Arnold's best friend Dudley gets molested by Gordon Jump. And it just sort of boggles my mind now that shows felt like they could, or had to, do stuff like that. I, I, I don't know why. And I don't even know how shows got away with it for so long. And I don't, to be honest with you, even know why it went away. Hell, do, do you remember when Edith Bunker was raped on All in the Family? Crap, I feel myself going on a tangent here. Uh, but I'm gonna, because who the, if you see Kate, you know what to tell her, is gonna stop me. The All in the Family thing was almost entirely before my time, but my grandparents watched it. And I was aware of the show because of them. I vaguely remember thinking it was funny that Carol O'Connor called Rob Reiner Meathead, like that was his name. But mostly, I just knew what was funny by what got a laugh from the studio audience, or the canned laughter that was so prevalent early on, but has totally gone away now. Unless those awful Disney Channel shows have canned laughter. Yeah, it seems like they would have to. Those shows are so terrible and so unfunny and they always have little kids in them. How the hell would they be shot live? You know, and I don't even hate those the way my friend Big does. He hates those shows. But I'm digressing again. Anyway, there was an episode of All in the Family where Edith Bunker, played by Maureen Stapleton, gets sexually assaulted by one of Archie's friends or something. You know, I don't think I ever even saw the episode. Not like the Gordon Jump Molests Dudley episode of Different Strokes. It's just sort of infamous on television. Part of Hollywood lore. And that show in particular was shot before a live studio audience. And I don't know if the audience had been warned ahead of time that this was going to happen. My guess is it wasn't. Though they do do that sort of stuff nowadays. 
Oof, which will lead to another digression if I'm not careful. But and the whole rape thing happens, as you can well imagine, off screen. And it's just sort of hinted out with this dude approaching Edith there in the living room set and like he, he putting his hand on her shoulder or something. Well, when they shot this, the audience, there's like a rumble of awful realization that goes through the studio audience, like, like a wave. Like the kind of wave they do at sporting events, not an ocean wave, where the group realizes that this dude is, you know, going to force himself on this good woman, this older grandmotherly type woman that all of America loved. And it's just a shocking, horrible moment that they caught on film uh, and then it goes to commercial with all the implications of what just happened, getting people to talk during the commercial breaks and all that stuff. They raped the main female character on a fudgeon sitcom. Anyway, I, I shouldn't have really brought that up. Except to say, we're talking about comedy here in this episode and what's funny and what ain't and what's controversial and what's over the line and what's offensive. And let me say this if I haven't already said it. That I'm setting aside this time to do this episode. And, and I don't even do the podcast that dares not speak its name anymore because I'm just too busy. It takes away from time I need to do audiobooks or editing or the Doonstief or that gets my go to the damn Star Trek outpost or whatever other six things I should be doing when I'm at home in front of a computer or microphone. But I'm doing this because of something somebody said about me, something somebody accused me of. And Big told me that guy was just a troll, a big, douchey, head-up-his-ass-you-can-say-anything-you-want-on-the-internet troll. But here I am either giving that guy the biggest round of applause any troll could ever get, or a big middle finger because I'm trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You can be the judge. But here I am talking, and I am trying to actually say something, which takes more preparation and a little more thought than the normal Rish outcasts do, because those are like, that gets my goats on the go. You know, where we're in a car, we're stuck there driving somewhere, and we just happen to be recording while we're doing it. Oh, just happen is in quotes there. So both you as the audience and we as the hosts are a captive audience. And we say what we say, completely unscripted and undirected. Which reminds me, I wish the sound quality were better on those shows and on the Rish Outcast. The fact that you can hear the windshield wipers or every pothole I hit or the wind or the engine or whatever, and sometimes it's hard to hear me, is frustrating. And that's not going to happen on this episode, is it? I'm sitting down, focused, trying to bring you something more... Well, I guess this is a very special episode of the Solo Rish Outfield podcast, isn't it? Oh, oh, so that digression I was going to mention. When I moved to Los Angeles, I was an extra on film and TV. An extra is a background player who doesn't have any dialogue. And I actually have some funny and or interesting stories about that, some of which I've never really told on the show. The gigs that paid the best were commercials, and I almost never got booked on those. But the gigs that I enjoyed the most were when I was an extra on a sitcom shot live in front of an audience. Now, because the audience is there watching, they'd try real hard to only do everything once because, you know, the jokes were fresh and the reactions were real. And when something had to be redone, the laughs would be smaller. And, oh, remind me to bring this up later in the show. But I worked on a show called Dharma and Greg once, which I've never, ever watched. But my buddy Matthew did. And he hated that show with a passion and would get going on angry rants about it the way I used to with Big Bang Theory. That show offended him the way Big Bang Theory offended, offends me. And the episode... Oh, wait. Dharma and Greg was a show about a married couple where the wife was a free spirit, kind of a kooky character type, and the husband was a straight-laced and boring and responsible. And this was where Matthew's hatred for the show came from, but what the hey. And in the episode I worked on, the special guest was Kevin Sorbo, who had been TV's Hercules. And he either played an old flame of dharmas or some hot new dude in her life. And at the end of that episode, which I recall being a two-parter kind of thing, or maybe it was an hour-long show or something. No, 
No, that probably isn't the case, because I would have been around for the whole taping, I imagine. And I wasn't. Though I think I did see that episode later to, you know, try to catch myself in it. Which I did at the beginning, but stopped doing later because it was just too frustrating to realize you'd worked on something, maybe for hours or all day, and then you didn't get seen, or you might as well not even have been there. My arm was in one episode of The Practice. But at the end of the episode of this show, of Dharma and Greg, we were shooting. Dharma and Kevin Sorbo are hanging out, having a moment, and they kiss. Or he kisses her and she lets him, or they both kiss each other. And the audience really responded vocally about this. They sort of gasped. And, and my recollection is um, that some people actually booed. Now, as an extra, you're supposed to have your own business and not look at who the center of attention is. I mean, unless that's part of the scene. And crap, I could do a whole episode talking about this and how there's no extra school, no training in how you do this. But I had an acting background, and I just did it, became focused on giving a good performance, and I actually cried at a funeral scene in another show because I was trying to act rather than just be an extra, you know, be a background body, be a prop that eats and walks and farts, you know? But the audience reacted so negatively in this moment. Because the show was about this married couple that are happy and in love. And here Dharma is kissing some other man. And I looked over, trying to figure out what had just happened. Well, the director, or, you know, it could have been the producer, because in television the roles are reversed. The producer has all the power and makes the decisions and runs the show, whereas the director is just a temporary person who comes in for a couple of days and calls the shots in a limited way. But the director comes onto the set and sort of acknowledges the audience and consults his actors, and then he says, folks, we're going to do it again. And it's good that you reacted in this way because we're going to deal with it as part of our continuing storyline, and, and we want the audience to respond that way too. But there's a couple of lines of dialogue here that we have to hear, so we're going to do that part again, and please don't shout or boo so we can hear everything clearly. And we did it again. And of course, just as Matthew hated about the show, Dharma can be forgiven for making out with this guy or sleeping with him or whatever. And there's no lasting repercussions on the marriage, and Greg is forced to forgive her because it was kind of a very special episode of Dharma and Greg because of that, because they're addressing infidelity and how you come back from that. And wow, I've given you three or four minutes talking about a show that is, frankly, not really worth talking about at least from how little people remember it. So I apologize for that. This show, the, the podcast, not Dharma and Greg, although pff, has pretty much faded into obscurity, even though I, I recorded one in 2013 that I intend to run someday. And that's mostly because it's so much easier to record in the car when I'm stuck there behind the wheel anyway. And my Jewish Peter Parker guilt can't cow me into doing something else with the time I have at my computer. The podcast that dares not speak its name was created when the only way I could record a show was sitting at this desk talking into a microphone. Then I got a new computer and I was no longer able to record on it, which is still a huge kick to the chaunch because it means I can never do a Skype call here. Or if I need to re-record a line for a podcast or an audiobook, I have to turn on my portable recorder, tape the lines, then connect it to the computer, transfer the recording, open it, and then insert it into whatever I was doing. I guess I've got to get a second new computer sometime soonish. One last thing. I said I would go back to this. I worked on a sitcom that was really, really, really funny and is way more forgotten than Darman Greg was. And like I said, as an extra, you are just a prop. You're not supposed to draw any attention to yourself. You're not even supposed to notice the people that have all the lines. You're just supposed to mime talking or mime drinking or whatever it is. Uh, while the other guys have their lines. And this show was really funny, and it would be hard to not laugh. And the, the audience is laughing around you, and that's kind of contagious. You, oh, geez, that's funny, and uh, I've got to pretend that I didn't hear it. And so, you know, if like one of the actors cracks up or whatever, the director will say, cut, and then everybody gets to laugh, and we all get to let off a little bit of that steam or that pressure. But... I remember that they, and I'm trying to remember what the word was they used. It was a euphemism for penis that they used in a line, and it was really funny. And it got a big laugh out of the 
audience, and maybe it got a laugh out of us as well, and maybe that's why they stopped. But the director or the producer comes over, and he says, we probably should do another one for safety. And, you know, I don't think he said for safety, but we should probably do another one where you don't say dingus or dick or whatever they said. Uh, so I think that the actress said the exact same line, but said Willie instead. Because Willie, I guess, is fairly low on the uh, offensiveness slide rule. And, uh, you know, it, the audience still, uh, some of them chuckled, but none of us did. And then the director came over a third time and said, just in case, I mean, I don't know where the line is drawn for Willie uh, at ABC, but um, let's do it one more time. Just like, you know, let's use the friggin' dictionary word. Sorry, all of the humor has been sucked out of my voice while I'm telling this. Do you, do you realize, do you feel that? And that's what happened when the actress said penis instead of dong or whatever she had said the first time and the second time. And it was so not funny. It was just, it was, it became ugly. Not, not, not ugly necessarily, but penis is a, it's a funny word because it's funny in some contexts, but in this one, it was so clinical as to rob that well-written, hilarious line of any humor at all. And I learned something in that moment. I don't know that I've had to apply it much. I mean, sometimes in my writing, maybe. But there are times when a certain word needs to be used. And yes, okay, maybe that certain word is offensive. But the alternative is for it not to be funny at all. And uh, anyhow, that was, like I said, a digression. But I had noted that to myself. I'll come back to that. And so here it is. And, and now let's continue on with the damned show. Everyone has a different sensibility, a sense of what's scary, what's moving, what's poignant, and what's funny and what's offensive. Even Big and I, who have been hosting the show, The Doon Steve, for a while now, aren't always on the same page. There are times when he tells me to cut stuff out of the show while we're recording, and sometimes I think that we should leave it in. And there are times when I make a joke or statement while we're recording then while I'm editing, I decide it's more funny than it is inappropriate. And then when I send it to Big, he actually goes in and cuts it out. Not to put into outtakes, not to save for a worst of show, but to put in the recycle bin. And to say that I'm pleased with that would be a bigger lie than I've ever told on the show. But the point is, even Big and I, partners, friends, cousins eight times removed by marriage, don't always agree on where the line is, what's funny and what's just not cool? Unless you've got an identical twin and you're close enough to still speak that creepy twin language the baby twins speak, jeez, you're not going to agree with somebody 100%. There's no accounting for taste or for sensibilities. My mom used to read Stephen King books. A time or two I stole them from her to read myself, but I was too embarrassed by what I found in them to talk to her about them, since she's very, very very straight-laced, and, well, King isn't. But we had that in common. You know, it was kind of neat, I always thought, that my mom had read The Shining or Cycle of the Werewolf. But not long ago, I mean, it was like two weeks ago, three weeks, I don't know, she gave me a book. It was Joyland, one of King's recent, fairly obscure efforts, saying that I could have it. I used to be able to read his stuff, but I can't anymore, she said. He's just too twisted. This is what she said to me. And that sort of hurt my feelings. Because he's my favorite writer. And would I even be a writer today if it weren't for his influence? I don't know. But I did crack open Joyland and started to read it. And I thought, wait, this was too twisted for my mom? It's a story about a young man who, during spring break from college, gets a job with a carnival. And begins to love that lifestyle. Most people... And the only twisted part really is, well, what's twisted? You know, that's like asking what's funny, isn't it? Or more appropriately, what's offensive? The book is pretty harmless. I'd let my niece read it. Although there was an over-the-close-hand-job scene fairly early on, which may be what turned my mother off. Or the language. 
She has much more tolerance for drunk drivers plowing into school buses than for the F-word or the S-word. Which reminds me of another story I wanted to tell. Dang, it's so hard not to. Maybe I'll come back to it. Rish seems to think being funny and being offensive are the same thing. I probably have a bit of an edgier sense of humor than the people around me. And I'm not easily shocked by certain words, as most folks seem to be. Except for whatever and facetious. But that's also a subject for another time. One joke I've never forgotten ends with the punchline, There's no reason for us both to get raped. And I absolutely love that joke. But I know better than to make it on the show, or, well, ever, I guess. Still, I think anything worth saying is worth joking about. I jotted down some notes a few weeks back when I started getting fired up to do this episode. And one of the five points I made were, Comedy is hard. My father's sense of humor. Does it exist? Fake Sean Connery exists so I can have an announcer of sorts and to take the air out of my tires so you don't feel so entitled to it. The interview just got pulled. When I was coming up with this show, talk about that movie The Interview was all the rage. It's died down really, really quickly now. But for a while there, you know, it was shocking that a silly frat boy comedy could stir the ire and threats of an entire nation. Or the the leaders of an entire nation. Or the crackpot at the top of the leaders of an entire nation. You know what I mean. Basically, there was a Seth Rogen-James Franco flick where they're bumbling journalists who were enlisted by the CIA to assassinate Kim Jong-un. Hijinks ensue. Well, Sony got their servers hacked. A bunch of embarrassing emails and memos got out. Sources said that North Korea was behind it. And there came a threat by the hackers that said if they were to release the interview in theaters, something akin to 9-11 would be the result. So Spony... Spony. Sony spoke to theater owners about it, and a lot of chains said they would not be showing the film. You know, in fact, a lot of theater chains were worried that respectable people seeing Night at the Museum and Hobbit would be afraid to go because of the threats. And if anything happened, well, they'd get sued. And then the studio made the announcement that they were pulling the movie from release altogether. Sony took a lot of heat that maybe they shouldn't have taken over-announcing they would no longer be releasing the interview. President Obama said they backed away from terrorist threats over a Seth Rogen film, as though that were the weakest reason he could imagine. So eventually, Sony did release the movie in the few theaters that wanted it, and I'm sure they've made a mint on video on demand. But they still lost a lot of money in the short run, and lost a lot of face there. Again, for the short run. I mean, what they did to Spider-Man is still something they should be more ashamed about. But that was really on my mind when I was told my comedy was offensive. And if I hadn't been so overwhelmed with work, it would have been good for Big and I to get together and talk about the interview and the pros and cons of giving in to demands, both the terrorists and theater owners. It just, it seems like a footnote now, you know? Like one of those bomb scares that ultimately didn't lead to anything. Although we'll never know how Jack Bauer got in there right before it was going to blow and stuck it in a box he saw lying around and told the man at the desk that it was nothing more than an electronic battleship game that somebody accidentally left on. Whoops. If real lives had been lost over this, like the ones that just happened in Paris over a pair of cartoons about Muhammad in a satirical French newspaper, then things would look really different. Was free speech worth the loss of X number of people? Does a dumb, lowbrow comedy film represent free speech? Or was it uh, the best reason these people could have for dying and or taking the lives of a bunch of people they didn't know? Was it North Korea or outsiders acting under the guise of a butthurt Kim Jong-un? Can the U.S. take reprisals against another nation because of what happened in those movie theaters? If they say it was North Korea, would people believe them? You know, if they know it was North Korea, then what level of reprisal is just? 
And how will North Korea respond in kind? How will the world see this interchange? Who ultimately will be seen as the villain when the history books get written? And it, and it goes back to comedy. Somebody thought it would be funny to make a movie about Kim Jong-un. Other people thought it was funny enough to finance a script, then a whole film. The movie was finished, ready to be released, because Sony Pictures thought enough people would go to it to recoup their investment. And then some. The industry shorthand is usually that a movie has to make three times its budget in order to make a profit. Were all these people wrong? Was just one person wrong? Were, were the terrorists wrong? Maybe I should be talking about the French newspaper thing instead. It's so much more timely. But the problem with that is, well, you get into the subject of Muslim fundamentalists and freedom of speech and religious freedom, and how long can this go on before Captain Picard says the line must be drawn here, and something totally non-American and non-humorous is done about it. And like I said, like I just said, that stuff ain't funny. Oh, and big surprise, talking about religion and politics and politically charged religious fanaticism is offensive to a lot of people. So thank you, terrorists, for turning me back toward what I was supposed to be saying. And when I say I, I guess I mean Rish Outfield. I mean, I am Rish Outfield, but he's sort of a persona. You know, I am able to hide a little bit behind that. Wait, wait, Rish Outfield said believing in Santa Claus and believing in God were the same thing. I never said that. Rish Outfield said people with red hair are horrible and disgusting. I never said that. Actually, that may have been Big Anklevich. Oh, Rish Outfield said cats were vermin. I never said that. Steve Ely said creative people like cats and non-creative people like dogs. I never said that. But I am Rish Outfield. And way more people know me as him than as, say, Algar Van Kluth, right? And to be honest, only 4 to 7% is a fabrication or an untruth. You put me and Rish Outfield together in a room, taking personality tests, and they'll end up closer than the aforementioned identical twins speaking their creepy gibberish. Oh, a Rish Outfield said identical twins were awful, chilling beings of great evil and should be put in camps. I never said that. A friend of mine once said that because Rish Outfield does not really exist, which was a shock when I tried to cash checks made out to Rish Benjamin Outfield on more than one occasion, sigh, uh, that I was freer to say what I want and do what I want uh, than if I were just horsed Breckenridge from Duluth. And because she took the high road by giving her real name, she doesn't have that liberty. She also said that I interpret everything she says in the worst possible way. But she both does and doesn't have a point. I am Rish Outfield. I am Iron Man. Big tells me to only publish stories under that name now because people know me by it. I have fans out there who would rather read a book under the Rish Outfield moniker than, say, Clive Chittister or whatever. And I both agree and disagree with him. Because, yeah, at least a hundred people know me as Rish Outfield. But... That isn't a mask and cowl that allows me to stalk evildoers in the streets of Gotham every night. In the end, I'm still me. And I'm still held accountable for the statements I make, the jokes I tell, the opinions I carry. Rish Outfield's opinions are my opinions, except maybe a little bit softer than my own, because he's trying to be funny when he says something. And he's got to, I've got to, keep on trying. Comedy is a defense mechanism. It's a way to let people around you know that you're cool, that you realize the sweater looks ridiculous, and yeah, I have put on a pound or two, but what of it? It's a way for me to say, please like me. I may not like myself at times, but I'm trying to make you laugh, so you remember me, so you overlook my flaws, so you'll like me. And sometimes there's desperation in that statement. Uh, I saw some girl crying about what some stupid boy or girl at her school said or did on Tuesday. And, and I thought, wow, what a drama queen. But in the same breath, I remembered back to high school and how miserable I was 
and how everything was such a huge deal, and how I could be around people and still feel alone, and how I often thought that life was not worth living, and a little thing could set it off, and there were times when I would have a wave of despair wash over me, and I didn't even know why. And I shuddered on Tuesday, because while anybody who has an IQ above room temperature will tell you, high school never ends. You get tougher. You discover that you can make it through, that what one awful junior in your band class says ultimately doesn't matter. That prom night came and you were alone and didn't go and wished you were dead. But then it went away. It was a date on the calendar. It was a date on last month's calendar. It was a date at some indeterminate point in the past. And who cares? I have become numb to most of those little slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. But someday, that teen girl I saw on Tuesday will be a grown-up and see that things don't hurt her so much anymore. That whether some pimply boy said she was fat or said she was hot mean the same as what some fat bearded guy said on his podcast a thousand miles away. Death is easy. Growing up is hard. But that teenaged me felt what he felt. And it sucked when Dennis went off to the homecoming dance and I was stuck watching Northern Exposure or just the ten of us or whatever was on that night because nobody would ever love me. I'm glad the teenaged me didn't know the extent of it, because he would not have made it. That time in my life was hard, but I got a little stronger. I mean, just, just a little, mind you. I'm nowhere near as strong as you are, virtually whoever is listening to these words. But I am funny. No? In When Harry Met Sally, Carrie Fisher says that everyone thinks they have good taste and a sense of humor, but they can't all be right. Comedy is relative. Maybe something I've said in this episode amused you. Maybe not. Maybe you've long since turned it off, and if so, bravo. You've found something better to do with your time. American Idol is on. Turn it up. As a writer, I'm much more interested in horror than in comedy. Like I said before, Stephen King is my literary inspiration, and the man writes more than just scary stories. But I'm okay to mostly write horror. And I haven't quite got it down yet. But to be honest, finding out what's scary is easier than finding out what is funny. All I have to do is scare myself. Think of something that would chill my blood. Walking through the woods and seeing a woman who's been living out there for two or three hundred years is one of my most recent and then try to replicate that on the page. And that's a hit-or-miss kind of thing. I mean, we've discussed it in Halloween episodes. One person's Samara from The Ring is another person's Chucky from Child's Play. What scares me doesn't necessarily scare you, even if I write it the best I can. But because it's horror, it turns off a lot of people just by its nature, and I don't have to hear their opinions. They don't read it anyway. But a joke... Well, everybody hears that. And is it more funny than it is inappropriate? Does context enter into it? I think so. Others do not, as I've discovered over and over again. And there have been times when I have intentionally crossed the line just to see what reaction came of it. And most of the time, there's little response, if we're talking about my podcast here. Or the termination of my employment, if we're not. Work is easy. Employment is hard. But we were here to talk about comedy, to talk about being offensive, and to talk about having a little pride in what I do. So, kid gloves off. Two things. First, I take a great deal of pride in what I do and what Big and I do on the Dune Steve. One of the gags I invented from the very beginning of the show, and I'm talking episode zero here, was that we would make fun of ourselves, of how bad our show was, of how terrible we were at doing our jobs. That I learned when I was a kid watching Late Night with David Letterman. He would always belittle his own show, with how badly things had gone, mocking himself before anybody else could. 
And there was the occasional asshole, like Cher or Crispin Glover or Madonna, who took serious offense to the guy. But most of the time, he would have beaten them to the punch. So it made their jobs all the more difficult. And by jobs, I mean the job of insulting the guy or saying that his show wasn't very good or very funny. So that was something I took from one of my heroes. And that attitude permeates the Steef, and to a lesser extent, that gets my goat. I mean, in actuality, I, I think we do a fine job on that show. Even when I say this was our worst show ever, it's usually just a joke. And I'm of the school that believes that any joke can be made funny if you repeat it enough. That can, of course, backfire. But it's one of the big things, one of the running themes on the Steef. Big has announcer men say some pretty negative things on the show. Stuff like, if Rish weren't here, we'd be entertaining without offending anyone. And it is my way, it is our way, of taking the air out of a lot of potential outcry or criticism of the show. And yes, I realize, I recognize that I have a problem handling criticism. Who else would do a show like this if they didn't? But look at somebody like Taylor Swift and how she put out a couple of songs at the end of last year basically saying, I don't care what you say about me. I'll just shake it off because it doesn't matter. But the joke of that is she wrote down the words, made up a tune to go with them and rhyme progression and all that, then got together with a bunch of professionals to record it, then had it mixed and layered and perfected, and then shot a music video all to say that she wasn't bothered by her critics. Is that irony? You tell me. Okay, I, I had two points I was going to make. And I really am working towards something here. So ho hopefully you dig it. But if not... <clears throat> so, the first is I think we do a fine job on the Dune Steve. Yes, we could do things better. Yes, we could put out more shows. Yes, we could take a chance or two. And by that, I don't know what I mean. Is taking a chance getting some stranger who we don't already know the talent of to produce or voice characters for us? Is it finding a story that we don't particularly like? Again, I'm speaking for big here when I should only be speaking for myself. Finding a story that I don't particularly like and running it because the writer is popular or has a lot of followers or says something progressive or new that we don't usually go over. Is taking a chance getting on there and saying, I would like a black guy to volunteer to do a voice on our show because... Well, it's okay if I do the voice of a German character or an Indian character or a Chinese character or a woman character or, in one instance, a Chinese woman character. But because of the imbalance of race relations, it's not okay if I do the voice of a black guy. I'm diverging from the topic, aren't I? Ugh. I was trying to say that we work pretty hard on the Dune, Steve. And joking aside, I think we do a fine job. People may not love every single story or every single episode, but there should be, should be, sirs and madams, something to like or laugh about in every single show. And the second thing I wanted to say was fake Sean Connery. Of all the things I do on my own podcast or on anybody else's, my absolute favorite thing by far is Sir Fake Sean Connery. Is my best impression, and the character just plain delights me. If I didn't feel like it would be work to do it, I'd have fake Sean Connery on every show I do, and I'd have him do a song every single show, too. But those mothers take time, and still don't work out perfectly when they do. The second song I ever did as fake Sean was Take Me Home Tonight by Eddie Money, and I've never shared it with anyone, because Sir Sean's and Eddie Money's voices sort of clashed. And I was too chicken to ever put it out there. But man, I love S-F-S-C, as they call him, well, absolutely nowhere. But F them if they can't hear a joke. And never come to mind, should old acquaintance be forgot in the days of old Lang Syne. Hey, Sir Sean! So, you're feeling sorry for yourself again, are you? No, not at all. Come now, don't spank a spanker. Ew. So, someone criticized you in your little show. Boo-hoo-hoo. Dude, it's not like that. I'm not upset that... It... Don't call me dude, son. Sorry, I... I've been crit... You think I haven't been criticized in my career? 
They said I was too mean for James Bond, too old for entrapment, and too hairy for Zardoz. They told me I couldn't do accents, and yet I played a Russian in Hunt for Red October, an Irishman in Darby O'Gill, and a Spaniard in Highlander. I showed them. Uh, hell, I played a Uton in Indiana Jones, and nobody ever batted an eye. You have to just believe in yourself, and the audience will believe you it, too. supposed to be a Uton in that? Holy sh... Sean, yes. You need to toughen up, like me. I won an Oscar. I won the hearts of millions, and the p*** of a thousand women. And you can, too. It's not like that. I just... So, some doorknob said you aren't funny. Sure you are. Tell that breast reduction joke again. It always makes me laugh. I stole that from Jay Leno. That's all right. You made it your... Jay Leno? You lipless lemming. Do something funny all on your own. Like what? Like, I don't know, wet yourself. Really? Sail into history. Right now? Of course. You think I've never stained my Scottish skirt before? Well, okay. Actually, no, I've never wet or soiled myself. I'm a real man. Now you tell me. I've got to clean this up. Stew in it. It'll toughen you up. I wish I had one of those diapers you wore in Zardoz. How dare you! Never mention Zardoz! But you did earlier. Indeed I did. It's called a double standard. <laughs> I can't believe you dampened your drawers just to get a laugh. You told me to. And if I told you to drop your pantaloons and do a happy little toddler dance, would you... <laughs> now that makes me laugh. Listen, can I say something? I cannot stop you, lad. Quite the opposite is true. I love your character. I wish I could do a podcast with just you. Not even I would be on it, just you. This is Spike Sean Connery, and you're listening to the evening news. The weather today will have a high of 32, and the air will be thick with smog. But they call it an inversion here because sin causes smog, so we would never admit we have it. That sounds nothing like me, my boy. But I'll take the compliment all the same. Anyway, I think about you all the time. Like I... Buy me a drink before you even think about hitting on me. Like, I'll be in the car or the shower and think, I want fake Sean to do so-and-so song. And most of the time, I'm, I never really do it because it's work. But I want to do more. I'm never happier than when I'm writing or ad-libbing stuff for you to say. Well, that's a compliment. But it's also very, very sad. Depressing, if you think about it. You want to know sad? I sometimes worry about the real Sean Connery dying. Not because I love Sean Connery. I, I do. But because I don't know if I'd be able to keep doing the impression on my show. Your single solitary fan would not care. That I'd wager. That reminds me. When I was in L.A., I was playing with my best friend, Matthew, a game where we asked each other to make, like, twisted hard choices. We were at Disneyland. And it was gay day, which I've told the story before. You'll tell it again. Thank you. And the thing is, we noticed all these people wearing red shirts. And no, I'm not inviting you to tell the bloody story again. Just saying that you will tell it again someday. Not today, someday. Oh, okay. Well, at one point I said to him, You can have sex with Marjolaine Trammell, but if you do, Sean Connery will die. And he thought about it. I think we were in line for It's a Small World. And he said, Well, listen, I'd really really like to have sex with Marjolaine Trammell. You have no idea. Oh, she was this Austrian girl that worked with us, but she was also a model. And we had this running gag that she hated Matthew more than anybody else at work because he was both black and a Jew. But I digress. So Matthew sits, says, look, I'd like to sleep with her, but I, I just couldn't live with myself if anything were to happen to Sean Connery. So he said no. In a silly, who-would-you-get-fired-who-would-you-like-to-see-naked kind of game, he valued Connery's life over the pleasures of his own Johnson. Lovely story. I'll send it in to the New Yorker. But 
What I'm saying is I love Sean Connery. And I worry that if he dies, which he will someday, that it would be inappropriate to do the impression once he's gone. You're the only one to worry about that. You think? No one cares, my stupid boy. Nobody listens to the blasted show. Well, that's too bad. Oh, don't start feeling sorry for yourself again. I'm not. Honestly, I'm not. I just... I have this idea that if Connery dies, the persona I've given you, which is basically a rip-off of the Daryl Hammond impression on Saturday Night Live Jeopardy sketches. But yes, true. But if he died, then it would no longer be funny to do you. That it would feel sacrilegious, you know? I suppose. But tell me the truth, boy. You've already decided what song I'll sing that day, haven't you? <laughs> Someone Like You by Adele. I was driving one time, and that song came on the radio, and I did it as you, and it wasn't funny. Not at all. It was just sad. Well, it's a sad song. I know, but it was sad in that you're saying, never mind, I'll find someone like you, and it struck me that she's pretending this person can be replaced. But the subtext is that the world is grayer and emptier without him in it, and it occurred to me that it would be a marvelous, marvelous Really? Marvelous song to do in, in honor of the real Sean Connery. Ah. Why, why don't you tell them where you got the idea to do these songs? The comic ones, I mean. Oh, yeah. Um, I have this track where Connery, the real one, covers In My Life by the Beatles. And the whole song, from the beginning to the end, he just reads the lyrics. There are places I'll remember all my life. And though I know I'll never lose affection for people and things that went before. The whole song! And the man can sing. We heard him sing in Darby O'Gill and the Little People, and of course in that Bond film with Hervé Villachez, where he does Short People Have No Reason to Live, My Finest Hour. But even though it's irritating that he speaks the song, it's still moving. Well, because it's a great song, but also because he's Connery, and he's an old man. I mean, heck, it would be moving if Harvey Firestein read those lines. And how would that sound, pray tell? But of all these friends and lovers, there is no one that compares with you. Oh, I'm sorry I asked. Anyway, I, I just wanted to say that it has been a pleasure giving you lines and giving you life, if I can be that pretentious. I know you, boy. You can be that pretentious. All right. So I'm proud of you. I think you're funny. I think you're cool. Hell, I think so too. But I suppose that's also admitting that you are funny. And at least know how to imitate cool. All right. Well, thank you. I think. You do phone it in at times. But for the most part, you usually give me entertaining bitch. And I appreciate that. Thanks, man. You're a horse's mahogany work table, but you aren't completely talentless. And you are funny, in that one regard at least. I appreciate that. Coming from you... Uh, yes? Well, that's pretty masturbatory, but... Uh, you would I know, would know a, lot a lot about that. that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for stopping by. No problem. You're too hard on yourself. You're neither offensive nor a racist. Well, thanks again. And anyone who says otherwise is a bleeding wop. Okay. Sir Fake Sean Connery, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> I do love that gun. It's a new year, which gave me a little boost when I thought about putting this show together. I could tie it into my New Year's resolutions and strive to have a thicker skin in 2015 and put out more of my work in 2015 and finally ask that girl to the prom in 2015, even though she's probably a grandmother now. And now that I've been talking for what seems like three hours, I don't know if I have the strength to do it. But it is a new year, and it's good to make goals even if you only work toward them for the first couple of weeks. It's still two more weeks than I would have had, huh? So, in 2015, <clears throat> I'm going to work hard and be courageous.
try to be funny, and to know the difference between being that and being offensive. But darn it, I'm still going to stray from time to time. If it's funny to me, I'll quite possibly still say it, heedless of the consequences. Um, I recently read Live from New York. It's a book of interviews talking about the history of Saturday Night Live. Now, Lorne's philosophy seemed to be, at least at first, that it was better to try something new and fail than to simply get an easy laugh. I liked that philosophy. But as the book goes on, you can see that Lorne Michaels got older, got more sedentary, and he plays it safer than he used to. You know, he runs that show, sure, but it's in the hands of younger and younger people, and maybe they must bear the standard of his earlier take-no-prisoners philosophy. So you'll still get the occasional offensive quote-unquote sketch, just not as much as when it was on the list of shows my parents wouldn't let me watch. Um, Bill Hader was an actor on that show, or a performer, whatever you call him. He said in the book, when he first started the show, he read a criticism on the internet about him. And he thought that he should rethink everything he did on Saturday Night Live. He, um, he was going to retire this character. Something that he thought was funny was just not funny. And, uh, you know, he had to do a lot of soul searching. And he tells this to a writer on the show. Uh, and it's the one who wrote the sketch that he got lambasted for, or wrote it with him, I don't know. And she says, well, I'll, I'll paraphrase, even though I've got the book in front of me. Who the fuck cares? Why are you putting all of your worth into somebody you don't know? They have no work or their own accomplishments you should respect them for, and they're just spouting shit about you. He said he tried to remember that moment, and later found out other people, and later found other people who thought that particular sketch or character was hilarious. It was just something he had to learn, the way I learned that though I wasn't athletic or handsome in high school, didn't mean that I don't have value, that I don't deserve a little happiness. I was young, and now I'm not. But hey, I'm still me, still struggling, still growing, still trying to make myself scared and make you laugh. I could do worse. So, we've come to the end of this little show. Little, you say. This is anything but little. I agree, and I'm sorry. Except that I'm not. This has been a glimpse into my mind, and into what makes me me. And I'm not ashamed of that. In fact, maybe I could stick this on my blog, and we'd be shocked by how long the sucker really was. Well, I mean, I'd be shocked. You wouldn't. You had to sit through it. I want to be more funny than I am offensive. I would like to know the difference. But me being me, I'm going to cross that line from time to time. Sometimes I'm going to mean it. Sometimes I'm going to just say something to see if it gets a reaction. Because that's what I do. Or the voices that tell me what to do, do. In closing, comedy may be hard. But it's one of the greatest things out there. Something that makes us human. Something that makes us stand up straighter when the weight of the world gets too heavy. Something to keep at the forefront of our minds when we discover that life is just high school without the pep rallies and school dances. Comedy is good. And, offensive or not, I'm glad we've got it. In 2015, I'm going to be funny. And I'm going to remember the words of the sage prophet Bono who said... Don't let the bastards grind you down. Good night. The music in this episode was created by Kevin MacLeod, whose shenanigans can be found over at Incompetech.com. The podcast that dares not speak its name is still produced under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives License. It doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. Between me and you, I think everyone's a little bit racist sometimes. Doesn't mean we go around committing hate crimes. Look around and you will find no one's really Colorblind, maybe it's
it's a fact we all should face. Okay, I promised you one last story. And it's not a very good one. Uh, in fact, when I told Big about it, thinking he'd have my back, he thought it was nothing out of the ordinary, nothing to get panties in a twist about. Over the years, I've worked a lot of retail. And one afternoon, a woman came into the store where I was working, wanting to return a video game. She had a problem with its content, which isn't a big deal. I mean, I had a guy return a Ouija board once, saying that he wasn't spiritually comfortable with his purchase, and he wanted us to take it back, even though he had opened it and played it with his friends. Spiritually comfortable isn't one of the choices on the computer for returns. But anyway, for this particular woman, it wasn't Grand Theft Auto or Far Cry or even Halo she had a problem with. It was one of the Lego games. Now, these Lego games are cute, child-friendly takes on a property. You know, Batman or Harry Potter or Gone Girl or The Hobbit. And you run around having cartoony, funny adventures in a world that's made of Lego pieces. They have ratings on games, and I think the Lego ones are always rated E or E10, which is usually because a game requires a lot of reading. Uh, but this woman wanted to return the game because she didn't like its content. And I just stared at her. One of the characters said, what the heck, she told me. I don't want my kids repeating what the heck or oh my heck over and over. I, I have to admit that I had to stand there for a moment processing this and forcing myself not to say anything. I told her she could get another game, but you're not going to find something much less innocuous than a Lego game. I know she didn't appreciate that statement. But that's me being as in control as Gandhi faced with an angry soccer hooligan. So ultimately, the woman got a Star Wars game, and uh, she brought it up. I felt I had to warn her, even though I've always felt Star Wars was as universal and kid-friendly as anything I love. If I were watching The Empire Strikes Back on the couch and Jesus walked in, I'd turn it up louder. But I told her, there is a little bit of violence, you know. In this, she said, I said, like shooting people with blasters and, well, she seemed really interested now. You know, chopping up stormtroopers with a lightsaber. Oh, said the woman, that stuff doesn't bother me. And she bought the game. Now, Big thought this was normal behavior at least for his wife's bridge group or something. But that sort of thing makes me shake my head in wonder and uh, say to myself, what the heck? <laughs>